Did you know that in South African law, up until 1914, it was a crime to commit adultery? If you slept with someone else's spouse, you could be tried and sent to jail. A hundred years later, well, that was, that was abolished in 1914. A hundred years later, we then abolished the civil, uh, what's the word, legal word I'm looking for, but you had a civil recourse. You could sue an adulterous spouse for damages. And in 1914, the South African courts decided that was no longer appropriate. In South Africa, adultery is no longer a crime. It's no longer an offense. And for most, it's not even a sin. See, our culture has turned a blind eye to the sin of adultery. Because, and we can track that in law. It's easy. But how much more has our culture turned a blind eye to? Do you remember the term pedophilia? Remember Common Ground Church down the road working with the FBI a few years ago to arrest one of their staff members because he was engaged in pedophilia? Do you know that we're now supposed to call them maps? Minor attracted persons. Because it's a, it's a disease, something you struggle with. See, friends, the Christian view of sin is being rejected in greater and greater measure around the world as the world becomes more and more atheistic in its underlying orientation. Sins like lying, fornication, swearing, greed, homosexuality, drunkenness, and sexual immorality are less and less thought of as sins and more and more thought of as viable lifestyle choices. And as that happens in greater and greater degrees around us, our eyes begin to become desensitized. And we can sometimes fail to see the heinousness of sin for what it truly is. An affront to our most holy king. That is the story that's at the heart of the passage that we're going to read today in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's a story about a church that could not see the sin that was in their midst. A church who had turned a blind eye to sin, who celebrated their own wisdom and hubris, and they could not see that they had utterly failed the king to whom they professed fealty. Friends, it is a story that is brimming with application for us as a church in the modern era. So we're going to read it together. We're going to do it in three parts, and we're going to digest one part at a time as we go. So let's take the first five verses. Paul writes to the Corinthian church. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And and as one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. That's the start of our passage this morning. Some strong words. So as we digest that, let's, I want to make five observations in this first section. And it's the longest section. So once you got through this, you're halfway home. Okay. The first thing is this. The sin 
is shocking. Hopefully you notice that. Paul is shocked that this is going on inside a church of professing believers. That there is someone who is actually in a sexual relationship with their stepmother. In fact, this sin is so depraved that it's something that not even the non-Christian people in Corinth would tolerate and contemplate. And if you remember from the like beginning of our series, the moral standard in Corinth is not very high. The bar is set really, really low. And yet Paul says, guys, this is going on even in the church. It's important that we recognize the seriousness of the sin because Paul is not addressing here a minor indiscretion. He is addressing something that is really heinous, something which God describes in Leviticus 18 as detestable to the Lord. And that is important for us for two reasons. The the first is this. Our world has increasingly chosen to disassociate the idea of love from sin. If two people truly love one another, they cannot really be sin. They're not really hurting anyone else. And and love is of God. And so those who love are, are like God, isn't it? John tells us that. But this example is recorded for us here in Corinthians, and it it pulls that idea apart. That is not a godly idea. That is an idea that comes from our world. It destroys it. Sin is that which is an affront to God. That is the place at which sin is located. Sin is to fall short of the standards that God sets, not the standards that we set. When David sins with Bathsheba and conspires to commit murder and kill her husband, having committed adultery, he comes and he repents before the Lord in Psalm 51, and this is what he says, Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned, and I have done what is evil in your sight, because it is to God that he must give an account. We need to recognize when it comes to sin that God sets the standard. He chooses what is heinous and what is not. The second reason it's important for us to see how shocking and heinous this sin is is because of its ramifications for church discipline. You would have seen some of that spell or hinted at at the end of verse 5. But it's important that we recognize this because this is not the normal Christian response to sin. Right? If you come to me and say, Brad, I'd like to meet you. I need to confess something. We're not going to be like, we need to kick you out of the church. That's not the normal response. This is the response to sin that is, that is significant, it is repeated, it is unrepentant, and it is heinous. And so we need to recognize that we're dealing with an unusual situation in this particular moment. This is the first thing I want us to see, the shockingness of the sin. The second is that when Paul speaks about this, he addresses both the one and the many. He addresses both the person in sin and the church that he's a part of. See, he's aghast that someone could be committing this terrible sin. But I want you to notice he never rebukes the individual. He just kind of assumes that. But he comes to the church and he rebukes the community. He says, a man is sleeping with his father's wife, but you are proud. You have the audacity to tell me how wonderful and wise and how the Spirit is moving in your midst. And you don't even understand how far short you are falling of the standard of God. They thought of themselves so highly, the Corinthians. They thought they were rich, they were wise, they were gifted, they were passionate. God was blessing them. They thought they were doing so well. And yet Paul comes to them and he rebukes them. He says, you should actually be mourning. You should be in tears before the Lord on your knees and grieving. You need to deal with the sin that is in your camp. 
This moment with the Corinthians shows us just how important it is to deal with sin that's in the camp. Because the church is not a collection of isolated individuals living their own lives. Friends, we are a group organism. We are interconnected with one another. We are one spiritual entity. And so when one weeps, we all mourn. And when one rejoices, we all celebrate. When one sins, we all suffer. And if you need an example of that, you just need to go back to read the story of Achan. And what happened to the people of Israel when he entertained sin by himself? See, our call as a community is to help one another live as Jesus has called us to. And sometimes that's going to mean encouraging each other when we're down and life is tough and we just need someone to come alongside. And sometimes it's going to mean showing the kind of love that calls out sin and herds us back towards righteousness. Without which, Hebrews tells us, no one will see the Lord. See, when sin is allowed to go unchallenged in the church, we remove the favor of God, we invite His discipline amongst us, and we lose that Christ-like flavor that God has called us to have. And if you want to see what that looks like, just read ahead in the book of Corinthians. Get to chapter 11. Spoiler alert, people die. People die because of their sin. Friends, unrepentant sin in a church community is a big deal. It's what Paul wants us to know. It's a big deal and it affects us. So we have an obligation to one another to call out sin and to spur each other on to righteousness. It's an important thing to observe. We're going to tease that out a little bit more as Paul does in the rest of the chapter. Third thing I want us to just pick up, and it's something I want to touch on briefly because it exists and it's weird and it's interesting, but it's a bit of a tangent and so we're not going to stay long there. Right, but that Paul speaks about himself as being both present and absent. Right, he does this in verses 4 and 5. He says he's present with them in spirit. And it's not something Scripture spends a lot of time unpacking for us, but I want us to note two things. Paul speaks about a unity that exists in the spirit, between the spirit and the believer. So if you go and you read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul will speak about how we are one spirit with the Lord. We have been united with him. We've been joined to him. His spirit has joined himself to our spirits. If you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, he spoke about when you gather as two or more, the spirit of God is there in your midst. And so Paul says to the church, because when you gather, the Spirit of God gathers with you. And because I, as a believer, am joined to the Spirit, so when you gather, I am there with you as well. And there's a sense in which, as a global Christian community, we are all connected and present in the Spirit with one another, as the Spirit is there. The second thing that we just need to notice here is Paul says, because we, I am present with you in spirits, now you need to recognize and hear my apostolic authority and you need to do what needs to be done. Right, so he uses that idea to, to motivate them to action. I don't want to say anything more because if we do more, we're A, going to get lost in a long tangent of interesting things and B, um, we're going to maybe say more than the text allows us to say. But let's, it's a fourth thing we can p- pick from this first five verses, is that Paul says there's only one option for the church to follow. He says, this sin is so brazen, it's so repugnant, that it requires immediate action. It reminds me of the story of Phineas back in Numbers 25, where Moses is busy preaching and telling people not to sleep with the nations that surround them, and one bro has pulled a foreign woman off into his tent, and so Phineas runs with a spear, and he just stabs both of them while they're doing it. It's like really intense, and you're like, wow, surely that's not okay. 
And yet God honors him because he was zealous for the Lord as God. There's only one option here, and it requires immediate action. Paul calls the church to expel the offending man from amongst them. He says, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And we need to unpack that just a little bit more. Like when we speak about handing someone over to Satan, what we don't mean is take him and give him to Satan for Satan's personal oversight and judgment. It's not what Paul is saying. Rather, it carries this general sense of whilst he is a part of the Christian community, inside the church, the Spirit of God reigns. And he is under God's domain and dominion and authority. When you remove him from the church, he goes out into the world, and it's in the world that the Spirit of darkness reigns. So that's the idea of handing him over to Satan. And the result of that movement is that it's going, as it relates to the, the individual, the guy who is in sin, is that it's going to lead to the destruction of his flesh. And so we need to clarify that as well. What, what does Paul mean by that? He doesn't mean some form of destruction that, as it relates to death. Paul is not somehow anticipating that this person would die as he is removed from the church. Rather, he's speaking about something that's about their sinful nature. It's des- his desire is that as we exclude this person from the church, the spiritual church community, the resultant loss in that person's life is going to lead him to repentance and thus the destruction of the sinful carnal desires that are currently in control of his life. It, Paul is creating for this person a cost to the sin that he wants to continue in. It's a cost which, if this guy weighs it truly, is going to lead him back to God in repentance. For those of you who are parents, you know what I'm talking about. This is called tough love, right? This is when you have to say to your son or your daughter, no, here is the line. This is the boundary, and it doesn't move. And no, you can't go to mom and say, dad said no, what do you say? This is the line. This is how we live in this house. It's a love that, that says that I, as the parents, know what is better for you better than you know what's better for yourself. And that's the heart behind this action that we need to see. And that's the last thing we need to pull out of the first five verses. Why does Paul call the church to send this man out? Right. The answer is in the last part of verse 5, so that his soul might be saved on the day of the Lord. Paul's desire for the sinful brother is absolutely and totally remedial. He wants him to be restored. He wants him to come back. He doesn't rejoice in punishment. He he doesn't like get excited when he gets to beat someone with a stick. His heart is that the brother would be saved. So that should always be the heart of any church discipline. The purpose of discipline, when considered from the perspective of the individual against which it's being outworked, is always meant to be redemptive. doesn't mean it's not going to be hurtful or painful. It doesn't mean that they're going to like it or agree with it. In fact, Hebrews says this. He says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. No one likes being disciplined. But later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. That is the purpose of the discipline. It's to produce repentance, which leads to righteousness, which leads to peace. Because to allow someone to continue in sin, to not hold them accountable to righteousness, friends, that is not love. It is not being loving. It's cowardice. It is choosing 
to allow someone for the sake of our own comfort to continue in something that is currently detrimental to their spiritual state and ultimately may have eternal consequences for their salvation. That is not love. That is fear. True, genuine love for a brother or sister is a willingness to call out their sin, to call them back to righteousness, to remember that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, not the mean-spiritedness of God, not the harshness of God, but the grace of God that brings us back to repentance. Okay, we're halfway through. Good job, you made it. Let's look at the next three verses from verses 6 to 8. Paul carries on. He says, guys, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In this second section, Paul uses a collection of metaphors and illusions. Go back to the Old Testament to help us understand a little bit more of what he's saying. We're going to consider three parts of that. The first thing I want us to notice is that Paul begins to explain why it's important that the Corinthians expel this man for another reason. And his reason is this. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole batch. The first reason was true love for a believer in sin, what it really looks like. The second reason is about the consequences that it has for the church. And he does this via an analogy to the fermentation process that happens in sourdough bread. So if you want to understand it a little more, you can go and like look that up. Some of you might make sourdough bread and you've got a mother dough sitting at home in a cupboard somewhere. Right? It's really, it's, it's delicious. Right? In, in a nutshell, what happens is you take a fermented piece of dough which has yeast in it and you add it to some other dough and the yeast works through a chemical reaction called fermentation to permeate through the rest of the dough until it all rises beautifully and you've got it in a nice bowl with a uh, cloth over it and the sun shining on it and it's lacquer and it makes a moy bread, doesn't it? Yes, it's nice. With baking, fermentation's good. With sin, it's bad. And that's Paul's point. Personal sin that is tacitly endorsed by a community becomes a part of and indistinguishable from that community. He says to us that if you don't call sin out and you don't expose it, if you just ignore it and you hope that it will go away or you think that it's not that bad, if you value relationships so much that you cannot speak truth, then that sin is going to spread into your community. And others are going to begin to engage in the same thing. And we're going to stop being able to see sin for what it really is. And our hearts are going to become desensitized. And eventually we will end up in a state where we think we have so many reasons to be proud, but God will look at our church and he will weep. Because like the Corinthians, we'll be unable to recognize that we have tolerated and celebrated something that is detestable to our king. So God calls us to separate ourselves from sin, to cut it out, to hold fast to righteousness, because that's what God requires of his people. And so Paul unpacks that a little bit more in the second thing for us to to notice in this middle section. And his call to the Corinthian church is, guys, I want you to become who you already are. Right? And you find this idea in in chapter in verse seven. 
And so he says, I want you to expel the offending brother, get rid of the old yeast, purify yourselves, because if you are truly my people, then show yourselves to be my people and remove the stain of sin that is among you. Do what is right. Cut yourself off from sin. But don't do this in order to be accepted by God. This is Paul's like gospel moment where he wants you to just make sure that you don't misunderstand his gospel in the midst of acting in obedience and actually doing something that the gospel requires. He says, I want you to do this because you've already been accepted by God and you've already been purified by God. So he uses this phrase, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has already been sacrificed. Jesus has died for your sins. You have been made righteous before God. He has given you this new status as sons and daughters in the kingdom. So now live out that reality. Become the church that God has already made you to be. That's his heart cry. It reminds me of that passage in Hebrews. For Jesus has done once for all time. He has sanctified once for all time those who are being made holy. You have been made holy. And you are still being made holy. Become who you are church, Paul says to the Corinthians. The Corinthians are now called to make sure that their actions come into alignment with what God has done for them in the Spirit. And finally, in this section, Paul calls them to go on living in righteousness. And this last section harks back and alludes to the Old Testament festival of unleavened bread, which was the festival they used to commemorate the Passover as God delivered them out of Egypt as the angel of death passed over the land of Egypt and all the homes of the Israelites that were painted on the doorposts were passed over and their sons weren't killed. And, and so with this metaphor, in this metaphor, you, Paul uses four words. He uses two to describe the old way and two to describe a new way. And the old way, in other words, the way of sin and disobedience, he characterizes with, with the malice and wickedness. And these words just form an umbrella term, an idea of the consequences of that living with and tolerating sin bring into the community. They bring malice, they bring wickedness, and if you go back to James, sort of every evil thing that fosters when we entertain sin. That's the old way, Paul says. But the new way, the way of righteousness and holiness is characterized by sincerity and truth. And again, you've got that kind of umbrella summarizing that happens in those two words. But there's a beautiful nuance in them as well. Because for the Corinthians, they're purporting to be a church that's revelling in the blessing of God. But that's not actually the case. In fact, there are some deep problems under the surface. There's an insincerity, there's a lack of truthfulness in the way in which they see themselves. And so now they need to move forward by becoming who they already are. By becoming and living as the holy people that God has ordained them to be. That's section two. Let's jump into the last five verses from verse nine to thirteen. Paul writes, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, or slanderer, a drunkard, or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those who are outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So in this last section, Paul refers back to a previous letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church. And it's a letter that we don't have. 
right? So you won't find it in your Bibles. It's like the, Paul's very, very, very first initial letter to the Corinthians. But that letter caused some degree of confusion with them. And so he clarifies what he wrote to them in that letter. And then he applies the teaching that he wrote there to this current situation about the guy and his stepmom. And so Paul begins his summation by clarifying what he meant. Craig, you can put that next slide up there. His previous letter called the church to disassociate from people who were deeply entrenched in sexual immorality. But he clarifies, these are not the unsaved people in Corinth. We expect unsaved people to be steeped in sin. The gospel would not need to be the gospel if unsaved people were holy. We expect unsaved people to, to have sin in their lives, to be full of sin. But we are called to be the light of the world. We are called to be the light that can only be seen in darkness. The call is not to disassociate from the ungodly people in the world. The call, the problem is with Christians, brothers and sisters who are steeped in sin. So if I can just take a quick pastoral sidebar, if you'll give me a few moments, Grace. Often as Christians, we want to call our non-Christian friends to stop sinning. Because we know sin is really bad for them. And we know it's bad for those that it affects. But it's not our job to be a moral compass to those who don't yet know Jesus. They don't subscribe to what we believe. It is our job to introduce them to a Savior, to a King, to help them recognize their need for a Savior. And when Jesus enters into their heart, He will bring conviction over the things that are keeping them far from Him. And He will cause them to turn and repent. It's not something that we can do. And it's often unhelpful when we expect unchristian people to live like Christian lives. Right, so the issue at stake here, Paul is speaking about as believers, not unbelievers. And to that end, he says something that is both incredibly strong and it's really hard for most of us. Don't associate with anyone who claims to be a believer but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even eat with people like that. Let's explore that just a little bit further. I want you to notice how Paul has broadened the scope. He was initially dealing with one guy in a situation with his stepmom, and now he's opened that right up. Right? This is no longer just about the guy and his stepmom. It's not even just about sexual immorality anymore. But Paul now creates a category of sins that are tied together by their pervasive and ongoing nature. Friends, I want to say this. These are not descriptors of Christians who are battling to overcome sin. Rather, these are people who see themselves as Christians and they don't see the sin that now characterizes their life and behavior. We'll unpack that a bit more in a moment. Where their sexual morals have become divorced from what is taught in Scripture and are pursued at their own leisure and within their own self-defined limits. Where greed has taken deep root in their life, such that in their wealth they hoard and they oppress and they take advantage of others where they have presumed that they can worship Jesus and still worship any other gods that they want, where they slander the character of others, spreading lies in order to improve their own standing in the eyes of others, where they engage in frequent drunkenness and the immorality that flows out of that drunkenness, and where cheating and lying have become just another way of doing business and getting what they want. The occasion for this instruction was the sin of one man, but its application is so much wider. And Paul uses these descriptors to show us that where sin has become habitual, 
characteristic and unrepentance, it is now a serious problem and requires dramatic action. I want to say that again. Habitual, characteristic, and unrepentant. This is the kind of, all sin in the church needs to be dealt with. Right? No sin should be allowed to carry on and fester. But if that sin is habitual, characteristic, and unrepentant, it requires dramatic action. Urgent action. And that's the second part of the command. Do not associate, do not even eat with people like this. Expel the wicked person from among you. And if we are honest, that is some of the hardest commands we find in Scripture. Because we know that they carry a really high relational cost. We know that. And as Christians, most of us are really nice people. Most of you that I've encountered, you're pretty lacquer. And as a nice person, it's awful to hurt someone that you love. It's awful to do something that is going to inflict pain on someone else. And we don't like to do that. This is where we've got to remember the fullness of what love is. Love doesn't just accept anything. Love is not without boundaries. Discipline is an inherent part of love. And a love that does not have discipline is not really love at all. And if you tell me you, discip- you love your children but you've never disciplined them, I'm going to question how well you love your children. And we're all going to see how they turn out later on. See, love requires pursuing what is best, both for the person and for the community, even if they don't want it or like it. The call to expel and to disassociate from those who remain in unrepentance, and really, friends, it is a call to love them. It is a call to set boundaries. It is a call to create a cost to sin so as to incentivize repentance and create a return to righteousness. And it is a call for us as a community to become who we are, to purify the community so that sin does not find a foothold in our midst and the enemy lead us astray. That is the message of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in a nutshell. We're going to take communion in a moment, and I want to share with you as we close three things that I would love you to just do with the Lord as we wait for him before we take communion. And the first is this. I want to invite you to take a long, hard look at your own heart and create a space for introspection. We need to ask the question like David did. God, is there sin in my life that I have just justified away? Have I become proud when I should be grieving? Within a few days, our world is going to be celebrating Pride Month. Just so ironic. Because there should be grieving and mourning. I invite you to ask God this question. God, is there anywhere that I have hardened my heart to the instruction of Scripture so that I cannot hear the voice of the Spirit anymore? the first thing. Second thing I'd love to invite you to do just now. I want to ask if you're going to be willing to embrace tough love. Are you willing to be someone who can give love when it hurts? Will you be the person in someone else's life who will tell them what they don't want to hear? Gently, please. With kindness, with grace, with compassion, and to believers. 
Right? This is not a fire and brimstone moment. It's love. Are you willing to stand by the boundaries that God has set, even if it hurts someone that you love? And finally, we need to become a community that makes a difference. See, Paul creates a remedy here in the scripture that if we had to, to exercise today, doesn't carry quite the same weight as it did back then. So if we expel someone from the church, there are three other churches that you could walk to from this church. And so the only way to make that remedy actually have any teeth, to give it any meaning so that it does something, is to become the kind of spiritful community that is unbearably hard to lose. A community where the presence of God is so vibrant, where the giftful ministry of the Spirit is so abundant and so steeped in God, where the love of our community is so rich, that if you were to lose that community, it would be devastating. Are you willing to work with God to make this church that kind of community? Will you commit to diligently seeking God to grow in the gifts that He has given you so that you can better serve this church? Will you sacrificially love this community so that the life of God here in the Spirit is so vital that it would really cost someone if they had to leave? Because it's only if we have that kind of church does this kind of discipline bring about the fruit of repentance. So we're going to go into communion together this morning. And as we take communion, we remember what Jesus did for us in his death and his burial and his resurrection. It's a sacred, ancient ordinance that Jesus himself gave to us. But as we go in, we're just going to be quiet for a couple of minutes, three to four minutes. And in that time of silence, I want to just invite you to take your heart before the Lord. I say, God, is there anything you need to call me to repent of? David prayed. He said, search my heart, Lord. Know me. Call out any unrighteous way within me. Let's do that before God this morning. Because Paul warns the Corinthian church later in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, if you take this meal without doing that work before the Lord, you eat and drink judgment onto yourself. Lord, is there anything, is there a sin in my heart? That I, that I just haven't been able to hear. Perhaps you're afraid or ashamed to stand for the gospel and you, you're, you're too afraid of how the person is going to react if you say something. Then you are of God and His call. Do you need to ask God for a greater desire to be all that He has created you to be for this community? to grow and to blossom and to burgeon into the fullness of how God has created you so that as a community of people, we would be the kind of church that we would be awful to lose. So we're just going to be quiet now. You take those things before the Lord. And in a couple of minutes, I'll ask those who are helping to serve to come up and we'll take communion together.
If I could ask those who are helping to serve communion just to come forward. The rest of us can continue to wait with the Lord. We're going to hand out the bread and the juice. And if you could just hold those two things and we're going to eat and drink together afterwards. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus, we want to thank you that in your voluntary death and resurrection, you attained for us what we could never attain. That you took our sins upon yourself and you paid the penalty, you paid the price for us. And we are now righteous because of you. And Lord, as we remember what you did together this morning, we want to pray that you would give us the grace to become the church that you have already made us to be. Lord, help us in all of the various aspects of our lives to become more and more like you, Jesus. We give ourselves over to you and we thank you so much this morning that the power of the Spirit is here to mold us and to shape us, to be like you and to live as you called us to live. So as we remember you this morning, we proclaim your death until you come again. Lord, in your death, you paid the price for our sin. And when you come again, you will establish your perfect kingdom forever in this world. Let's eat and drink together. Friends, we're going to bring our service to a close together this morning. If you would like to do some ministry, uh, many of the elders are here this morning and are very available to do that. If you would like to, to talk about anything that's been shared this morning, you're so welcome to do that. But we have tea and coffee available in the Connect Cafe. And we want to wish you a wonderful rest of the day and pray that as you go into the week ahead, that you would go in the power of the Spirit so that we would bring light into the world that is around us and lead many who are lost to find Jesus. Have a wonderful Sunday afternoon, a blessed week, and we look forward to seeing you soon.